Today's episode of State of the Game is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. For a free trial and a free audiobook download, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash S-O-G. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for state, O for of, G for game. For a free trial and free audiobook download. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and what matters today is the US Masters and Jordan Spieth, Donald Trump tinkering with Turnbury, and no doubt a host of other topics that will emerge as the discussion goes on. I'm joined today not only by my usual co-hosts, but by our first return guest on State of the Game, Gil Capps, who we spoke to last year about his fabulous book on the 1975 Masters called... The Magnificent magnificent Masters. Before we welcome Gil for a second time, let me bring in the other two-thirds of the State of the Game team from the US, hopefully recovered from a frantic week at Augusta National, blogger, architect, critic, author, etc., etc., Jeff Shackelford-Shack. Looking forward to chatting with Gil again. He was terrific last time around. Yes, I saw Gil down at Augusta, and uh, he was there uh, working in his uh, Golf Channel capacities, and it was uh, it was a phenomenal week, as you as you probably had guessed. Indeed, and uh, and can't wait to to unpick some of the reasons why it was interesting. Those of us who weren't at Augusta included our other co-host, columnist, commentator on the game, former touring pro Mike Clayton. Clates, you and I sat here in Australia, watched the Masters on television. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on the coronation of the reigning Australian champ- Open champion two weeks yeah, ago. He shot that great round in Australia and started his run. He blew him away the next week in California, and it's been pretty good ever since, really. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it was interesting, Clades. He said he doesn't like people referring to it as a run. This is how he expects to play every week. Interesting comments, weren't they, that, uh, that this wasn't some kind of special run. This is what he expects to do, so... Uh, terrific week for him. And as I mentioned in the opening, he's our first return guest at State of the Game, so he must have done something right the first time round. Author and TV type Gil Caps, aptly described by one magazine recently as arguably the least known important figure in golf television. Gil oversees the Golf Channel's editorial research unit. He sits in the main commentary booth during NBC's golf coverage, providing Dan Hicks and Johnny Miller all those amazing little tidbits about the players and the courses that make you wonder, how did they know that? Gil, great to have you back. Looking forward to getting your thoughts on the Masters and everything else that comes up as we chat today. Well, cool, quite an introduction. Thank you very much, Rod. Great to be with you guys again. You never realised how important you were, did you? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Congratulations. I wanted to start with you, Gil, of course. The book that you came to talk to us about last year, the 1975 Masters, it was one of the great Masters because, of course, the competition was so close. This year's Masters, and as Jeff said, uh, he ran into you there, so we know that you were there, it kind of especially in a different way. It was a little bit like 97 when Tiger Woods burst onto the scene and won by a million shots. There wasn't the excitement of close competition this year, but you had the feeling something special was happening. You did. Let's just hope we look back on it in 10 or 20 years, and and it was something special that happened, and not just this uh, this false hope and this aberration and this uh, you know quick crowning of Jordan Spieth as, a, as the next great American player. You know, there seems to be a, a hunger out there for that next, that next guy, and, and look, while Rory McIlroy is obviously a great player, you know, I think there still is, you know, in this country where we are, I don't know if it's quite the same way down in Australia, but, but I think there is a difference between having a player that's great 
but who's, who's not from here and who's not quite as, as identifiable to that, you know, uh, apple pie, middle America guy out in the Midwest, uh, you know, as, as somebody like Jordan Spieth, Spieth is. So, um, so there's a great appetite for somebody like Jordan Spieth. And, uh, and we'll see, you know, like I said, down the road, if this, if this turns out to have been one of those uh, r- real defining weeks and real sim- similar moments in, in the game of golf. We always have these knee-jerk reactions, don't we? We had it with Rory when he missed a bunch of cuts in 2013, that that was it. He was washed up. We'd never hear from him again. <laughs> then, we, then we crowned him the new king of golf when he won the last two majors of the year last year. What's your gut feeling about Jordan Spieth? You're leaving aside all the knee-jerk stuff. You've watched a lot of golf. You've seen a lot of golf over the years. You've seen a lot of players. What's your feeling about Jordan Smith? This this does seem to have been a sustained run. I don't think anybody's suggesting he's Nicholas or Woods as yet, or nobody who's sensible. Um, but where does he fit for you? What's your gut feeling? He looks to be the real deal. He does. I'm still trying to figure out a little bit, to be, to be honest with you, uh, and I'd like to get everybody else's take as well. You know, the, the, the guy he reminds me of more than anybody else, and it's hard to peg him because you, you, you watch him and nothing really stands out. You know, a lot of guys, you go down the list of, of the top 10, top 20 in the world, and, and everybody kind of has, has one strength, something they're kind of really well known for. And Jordan is not, you know, other than obviously making putts. And look, to win golf tournaments, you have to, you have to make putts when they, when they count. But for Jordan, nothing really stands out. And he kind of reminds me of, of Curtis Strange, to be, to be honest with you. You know, he, he plays a little like Curtis. You remember back when Curtis was, what is in his prime, you know, nothing really stood out about his game other than, you know, he, he you know, for the most part, you know, he had the lowest score that week, mm. right? And he, and he was a real grinder, and he wanted to win so badly. And, and Jordan's got a lot of that, and Jordan's, you know, in, in a very short time on tour, you know, and that's one of the things I, I, I've also seen here in the last four months, a big difference with him. You know, he's, he's really toned down his emotions, when it gets toward the end of of a golf tournament, that was a big issue last year. As it got late Sunday, you know he would get real agitated and he would get really fidgety, and and you could tell he wanted it so bad. But controlling those emotions down the stretch, and he's been able to do that now with this. You know, you you're right. It's not he doesn't want to call it a run. He thinks it's the way he should be playing, be playing all the time. Clates as a player, he was very impressive down here in Australia, particularly that final round. Obviously, the Sunday round is, you know, when you can do it, when it counts. It was about as good as golf gets, that 63 he put together around the Australian on Sunday. But what's your talk on take on speed? I think I agree with Gil. You, you can't sort of nominate anything about his game So well, he's particularly good at this. Obviously, that amazing shot he hit in the, the 18th hole in the third round, that amazing sort of flop shot he hit down and saved par, which was pretty important, as he pointed to afterwards. But... Gil's kind of right, isn't he? He doesn't seem to do anything amazing. He doesn't hit it like Dustin Johnson off the tee. He hasn't got the short game of Phil Mickelson. But at the end of the day, he seems to have the lowest score. Some thoughts about Jordan from you, Clates? Oh, I like the Hankoni's approach where he looks at the stats. And the amazing thing about Spieth is he's the last 18 months, he's, 18 months, he's neither been in the top 100 in fairways hit or greens hit. So that will tell you something because Tiger and Nicholas were – in the heart of their careers, always the best ball strikers, or, or, or certainly high up in the stats. So that's that, that goes to what you guys are saying that you can be out of the top hundred in both those categories, yet still play as well as he has because he scores well. I mean, Curtis Strange was played with him one day when he, he won a thirty-six old tournament at Sanctuary Cove. 
well, we played 36 the last day. It was a rain out. And he was good because he, well, he never missed a shot. He just played 36 holes. It wasn't a difficult course, but he didn't miss a single shot. So that was the strength of his game was he just didn't miss shots really. But um, I mean, I haven't seen Spieth play enough to really make an informed comment about him. But I think that Haney would say, well, he's not in the top 100 in greens or fairways hit. So you, you would think he would need to improve that stat, except that you go to Mark Brody's analysis of the Masters and the top six players were the top six players in strokes gained through the green. So clearly his ball striking was tremendous at the Masters. And he was he, he was the best putter of those six, the, the, the top six players. So That is probably the part that does stand out, isn't it? He holds those yeah. six to ten footers, yeah. whether they be for pars or birdies, just seeming to be constantly. Clades, what does that, does that tell you anything about a player? They always said about Curtis Strange that no player in history ever hated to make a bogey more than Curtis Strange, that there was just this competitive fire within. Is there something just instinctive sometimes about a golfer like Spieth of just finding a way to get it in the hole as quickly as possible? You missed that 11th fairway on the Sunday, way right, hit exactly the, the right shot down there short of the green and got it up and down to make part, just that sort of instinct. It's a bit, I think, what we saw from Tiger at the Masters, which we haven't seen for a few years. The golfer sort of kicks in and the instinct to just get the ball in the hole, whether it's ugly or however you do it, just to get the ball in the hole. Has Spieth got that, do you think, maybe? Uh, well, clearly he has, yeah. You can't do what he's done without having that. The interesting thing is if you were going to criticise Australian players, and I know Jeff Ogilvy makes the point that he said we spend so much time worrying about how we hit the ball that we forget to score. And Spieth is coached by an Australian who grew up in Melbourne and was part of the VIS, and clearly he's – well, it's, it's, it's obvious when you say it. The, point of, the whole point of golf is scoring. It's interesting. Yeah, Spieth almost made the point himself, didn't he, Shaq, in his his post-Sunday press conference when he talked about learning to play the game essentially on the course as opposed to hitting just hitting balls on the driving range all the time. That he, A bit like Bubba Watson, he likes to see lines, he likes to see putts that break. Maybe more the artist than the engineer, perhaps, Shaq? Oh, absolutely. And when you, you watch him play, you realise that. And, and you know, we've talked about it before on the show when, when he was not liked last year for his his uh, what what Gil references kind of the way he was sort of came off as whiny and um, analytical. I, I defended it because what I saw and have seen in person is he's 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 constantly questioning his approach to the golf course. He's not it's not sort of a whiny country club brat thing. It's a it's a constantly trying to get better. And what I think is most heartening about last uh, about the Masters, even though the golf course was so soft. And uh, and really not on edge or even close to it, he still was rewarded for I think out outthinking everybody. And uh, besides the fact the putting is is just extraordinary, he he really maneuvered his way around the golf course better than everybody. He's he's working harder I think than any player uh, you can name out there right now, except you know, maybe a couple. But he he's working so hard at picking golf courses apart. And I think that's just phenomenal. You know, Riviera this year, he, he was, every time I watched him, he was awful. And he missed the playoff by one. You know, you, you just think, wow, that's, that's impressive. He was hitting shots in places that were, were not great. And, and yet he kind of keeps, keeps chugging away and he knows where to miss it. And so it may not be pretty, but um, there's so much thought behind what he's doing, that's, uh, which is something we've lamented disappearing from the game too often. We're going to chat perhaps a bit later, Jeff. 
briefly about uh, players becoming commentators. Jordan's already a terrific commentator on his own game, isn't he? Does any player talk to their ball or about their own game more while they're on the course than he does? It's extraordinary. You can almost see him, as you say, he's all that thought. Well, it's, he's, it's public, isn't it? He's telling you what he's thinking while he plays. It's a lot like uh, Trevino, only without the, the joke cracking. And some of it's nervous energy, and then some of it is just this uh, constant conversation with his, his caddy about – uh, what we did and what we did wrong. And, and um, yeah, he gives his caddy some looks sometimes, too, where you think, oh, boy, that's <laughs> that's not good. Uh, but that's just their – that's just how they work. And his caddy clearly uh, is, is, is a very tough person mentally because he stands there and just very quietly takes it. But he's also got a lot going on and is is uh, thinking about everything imaginable in, in – uh, protecting his player, making his player better. And so it's, it's neat that people saw more of that this year and it helped that Jordan didn't drop any clubs or kind of, uh, you know, have some one arm finishes and then some loud kind of, uh, whatever it was that really bothered people last year. And I understand it, but it was nice that he came off better. And then his post round press conferences, as you say, he's, uh, He's already a great talker. I mean, he's just uh, he's just fascinating to listen to. He, he answers every question, uh, you know, a lot like Rory. He he seems to enjoy right now the answering of the question and giving you some insight. The green jacket ceremony on the green, the one not in Butler Cabin, Gil Caps. I thought he spoke terrifically there. He clearly thought about it previously, but off the cuff, it was a it was a it was a magnificent speech, really, wasn't it? He's got that quality about him. He can certainly. So talk comfortably in public, no question about that. I mean, for for for, for a guy who's twenty one years old, and he's uh, you know he's top five uh, interview in the game right now. I mean, the, the, the way they would have put together words and in his thought process. And I, I want to quickly touch base on on two points. I both thought were, were excellent by Jeff and and Mike. You know, number one, Jeff, it's the the idea of you're like the way he managed his way around that that golf course. You know, for for old school. Folks who uh, you know who watched how how the Masters, how that golf course used to be played by guys like Hogan and and, and even Nicholas, you know that was uh, uh, it's very different from the way a majority of players would would attack uh, attack yeah. a golf any golf course. Nevertheless, the Augusta National. And and to Mike's point too, you know I I thought it's a great point. You know it's about the score, right? And I think that's all Jordan thinks about. And and the, the guy who you know, I think thought that way more than anybody else was Jack Nicholas. You know, it, it was all about the score for Jack. You know, just going back to, to 1975 Masters, which is the uh, the, the Masters I seem to have the most expertise in uh, among all of them I've seen. Is you know, Jack. You know, Jack was a guy. You know, that year in '75, basically he had he had three guys there with Jack and Johnny and, and Tom Weisskopf. He had three guys who had they had cars that could each go 100 miles per hour, right? And and Johnny liked to run his car as fast as he could all the time. You know, Tom liked to run his car maybe not quite as fast as Johnny, but he liked to he liked to run it pretty hard. You know, for both of those guys, and they admit it. You know, they admit it when I talked to them. It was a lot of golf was about style points. It was about how you look swinging the club, how you dressed. You know, for those guys, for, for Johnny and Tom, a lot of times they'd be more satisfied with maybe a sixty-seven they shot. Where they had you know every fairway and every greening regulation, and maybe they didn't make the putts, but they played golf like they thought it should be played, you know. And maybe they shot a 65 where they 
they chipped in and hauled out a bunch of stuff. That was okay, but but that didn't give them the satisfaction, even though it's a lower score. Where you had Nicholas, you know, and, and, and that's the thing that I think when people go back and watch Scott back in the day that surprises them, you know, Nicholas had the 100-mile-per-hour car, but he never went 100 miles per hour. You know, he usually went 70 miles per hour. He really fought his way around the golf course, played conservative golf for the most part, some of that due to the courses and the equipment at the time, I know. But 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 he only played aggressive golf, and those percentages favored him. A little like Jordan, right? A little like Jordan in that 13th hole, you know, all week, right? He never felt the percentages allowed him to put that green the first three rounds, right? And then, obviously, the, the, the fourth round, um, which he's sitting down there with only a, a foreign in his hand, and, and obviously our TV commentators, you know, just assume he's laying up. Well, that was a time where he was in his percentages, he thought, to go for the green with his partner in his hand, and he did. He puts on the green and, and two putts for birdie. So, you know, so, so he's really thinking, you know, playing golf to me like like a young Nicholas, just maybe without, you know, with, without that great advantage Jack had of, of distance and being able to hit the ball so high. Yeah, and, and sort of. Enormous distances. Gil, how important is it that our, he's now number two in the world, obviously, behind Rory? First time the world's number two players have both been 25 or younger, which is making me feel terrible. I don't know about the, the rest of you, but how important is it that our top golfers are likely? Personality-wise, he was extraordinarily impressive down here in person in Australia last year. Every day he came into that press room and I walked out every day more impressed than the day before. Uh, how important is that for the state of the game overall, I guess, that you have the likes of Jordan Spieth at the top of the game, who, as you say, is one of the five people you'd like to interview were you to get the chance? Uh, it's very important, especially if he keeps playing well, like I said, the rest of the year. You know, and, and Jeff can comment on this because he, he certainly uh, blogged about it enough last year in our uh, you know, 2014 with the year I got, took a lot of hits in this country uh, from a lot of mainstream media sources, you know, courses closing, participation uh, rates down, uh, you know, ratings down on TV, this and that, games dying, et cetera. So, so I did this thing having this young, uh, great sportsman, you know, who can kind of capture the imagination of, of the country, really boosts the level of golf and gets it back, you know, on, on a positive note in front of, in front of a lot of people. It's, uh, uh, it, it's very important. It's very important, I think, if you were able to, you know, to, to keep winning and keep in, in the picture, which, you know, which, which all indications are he, he's going to, but that I will, I'll forward a question, you know, on the mic. And again, making the, the Nicholas comparison, especially with, with, with the way Cameron McCormick handles him is pretty impressive. You know, he's, he's not out on tour a lot. He kind of lets Jordan, you know, when he gets out, he, he does his own thing. He leaves him alone. Same way that, 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 um, um, that, 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 that Jack Rout did with, with Jack Nicholas when, when, when Jack was um, um, coming on tour. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Jordan resists some of the temptations we've seen other players who have reached the pinnacle of the sport have. I mean, you know, Tiger's one person, right? Tiger, is as great as he, he was, the fact that he, he has is, is changed swing coaches so much and changed his game so much still still boggles my mind and go to, you know, the, the list runs deep with Mike, the list of guys who've, who've found success and then decide they need to get better in some area and completely change their game. And the, the most recent case being Luke Donald, you know, number one in the world, um, you know, God, I mean, just a, a game you, you'd envy yeah. that Luke just doesn't think that's enough to get him a major. And uh, I don't know what else he needed, 
but you know he decides he needs to he needs to get it longer. He needs to to change swing coaches. He needs to do stuff different. And and look where he is now. He's what I think he's about fiftieth in the world. So we're going to see going forward if Jordan over the years can can resist that temptation if he just kind of stays the course and, and just like he does now if he, he accepts his strengths and weaknesses and, and, and plays you know toward him and against him and, and does his own thing if he does that I you know and stays free of injuries I think that the future's much more brighter than if he uh, than if he gets sidetracked on some of this other stuff interesting question Clay it's dangerous for speed going forward I guess in, in a a golf world vastly different to when you were playing on the European tour. There are a hundred thousand people who'll be lining up to tell Jordan how we can do it better, won't there? How does how do you block that out and keep doing what you're doing? I wonder. Well, I mean, everybody's game adapts, and Nicholas's game adapted a lot. He's swing changed a lot. I was reading Michael Bamberger's book yesterday, Men in Green, talking about Curtis Strange spoke about when he was coming out on the tour and how how, how his swing was too loose and too erratic when he was in college, and how he, how he Tighten that up, and so so everyone's game adapts as they get older, and their body changes, and they get, you know they get less flexible. And but Tiger's been the, the the obvious extreme to that, where he's just completely changed his swing four times. And interesting, I thought one of the most interesting things about Bamberger's book was players talking about the edge, how, how you know as Palmer spoke about it when you how you just lose the edge. And he's he was writing about Watson and Watson's in a failure to win. I hate to call it a failure to win that 2009 Open. He just said, "Well, he just lost the edge." You know that that tiny thing that where you just you know Tony Jacklin at Muirfield when Torino buried him there, and how players just there's a moment in their career when they just kind of it's gone. That that magic is gone. And I mean, did Tiger lose that when he drove the car into the fire hydrant? I don't know. Probably did. Yeah, you know, but but I thought that was a really interesting point about a lot of the people Bamberger spoke to on that journey through America. They spoke about how it just went, for, you know, for for, for for no particular reason. It was just yeah. there was something that happened that was and it was gone. Just that that tiny thing that creates the, why these guys win, and all, all, all of a sudden it, it's gone. A feeling or a thought or a, a self belief or a, a way you look. You, you've often said on this show, Clates, about Seve that you only get so much good golf. You only get so many wins, and when they're done, they're done. There's some other, some other worldly force perhaps at work there. It sort of feels like it's hard to explain, isn't it? Well, I think those guys were under Seve and Tiger. Seve in Europe was the main guy there every week, and Tiger in America, obviously, for so long. You just, I mean, I, mean, I, I wonder if they they just wear out. Well, and that's. The big issue for Jordan is he is uh, he's he's very loyal to these tournaments that gave him exemptions, yeah. and uh, which is wonderful. And and I mean Riviera, he's he got an exemption when he was an amateur for the Northern Trust Open, and I sense he's going to be very loyal to the event for more than just uh, one year. And that's going to be, I think, his biggest issue is saying no. I think he'll remain centered uh, when it comes to his his swing and his game and knowing his limitations, but. The the I mean this schedule that he's got now uh, the next few weeks uh, when when he is such a favorite at Chambers Bay having actually played there having his caddy having caddy there uh, the way he plays the game his imagination and uh, you know you look at his schedule and you think where's he going to get in a, a little scouting trip up there and uh, I mean he he will but boy it's it's a lot and that to me is that's really the only thing he faces and I, I think his dad's pretty good about uh, 
uh, intervening at, at select times in his career still, and he listens to him, and that's pro- hopefully one of the ones that he chimes in on is is saying no to a few events uh, and pacing himself you, you, better. You get the feeling though, Jeff. The whole point renting two houses at the Masters, you know, one where all these friends are, you could play table tennis and you know yeah. anything buck up, and then the other one where he goes to sleep. That's that's a little thing, but gee, it's telling, isn't it? I've never heard of it. Well, he, I'm sure it's been done before, but yeah, you know, yeah, they a, got, he got that from Tiger. What I thought I found most interesting about that was he did it last year too. Okay. Uh, yeah, it'd be one thing to do it this year after he's made some money and and things are he's really clearly a favorite going in, but he did it last year when he was by no means uh, a, a, one of the favorites going in, and and he finished second. So uh, there's there definitely is a lot of thought put into how he approaches things. And uh, so far, not too much thought. It seems. It seems like it's a it's a good balance of of, of analytical and uh, uh, precision and and all that good stuff without it being uh, over analysis. Indeed. And of course, then the following week, he uh, he rents a condo and shares it with Justin Thomas. So the complete opposite. <laughs> Him and one of yeah yeah. Yeah, there are certain things as majors, and there are certain things as other weeks. I I, I think Mike makes makes a great point, even though he makes the mistake of of popping somebody else's book while I'm on a podcast. It was a Michael's book. I, I haven't had to read it, but I've we heard it's great. We haven't had him And I'm not saying that Michael stole anything from my book, but, but I did make a point as well in, in my book about about that edge, and, and particularly with, with Jack Nicholas. You know, Jack understood that, I think, more than anybody else, and I really believe that's why... A lot of times he, he played the way he, he did, and, and, and that was that he never wanted to give away this great mental edge that he had. Everybody it was kind of the edge that he had, and the confidence you know that he had in himself. It, it was that voodoo thing he had of everybody else. You know the fact that everybody who got up on the leaderboard, you know, with him on a weekend, they would usually melt away if he was there, and all he had to do was just not make mistakes and keep this aura of Jack Nicholas, and, and that was important. And even in practice rounds, you know, Weisskopf was telling me, you know, it, it just didn't matter. Jack wasn't going to give you anything in a practice round. You know, he wasn't going to give you the, the confidence or the, you know, the thought that, you know what, this guy's beatable. You know, he, he, he was going to putt out everything and, and took as much time over, over practice rounds and, and money games and practice rounds as he did uh, in tournaments. And, uh, and, and, and to go on the other point Jeff makes, you know, about, about the houses, it, it was the same way with, with Jack. You know, I asked Barbara Nicholas about, uh, uh, about it for the book, and she said, you know, she said, we knew about the Masters and we knew majors. And that's why, for the most part, until they got much older, the kids never traveled with us to major championships. When you when you're talking there, Gil, it's one of the greatest lines in sport, isn't it? That, that you know, Jack knew he was going to win. You knew he was going to win, but he also knew that you knew he was going. That's to win. exactly right. It's exactly so telling, right. isn't it? Yeah, it's so telling. There's 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 not many people have that, as you say. Whereas you know, Woods has won. Seve was one. I imagine Gladesman players looked over their shoulder and saw Seve coming up the leaderboard. That meant something much more so than had you been making a charge on the last day or somebody of a sort of a lesser profile. That that aura and that edge that they. They bring, and that's sort of intangible, isn't it, Clayton? Can you work on that? Can you practice that? I don't think so. You must be born with it, surely. Well, you just have to be good. Too. I mean, Jack was really good. I mean, he was, yes, right. he was really good. I mean, he was a, probably the best putter who ever played. He was. A, he had this massive power. He was. Again, I want to. Uh, um, Curtis Strange spoke about when he 
in your Masters, Gil, the, the, the 75 Masters, Nicholas in the first round, 36 putts, 68, hit every green, every par five and two, 36 putts. So it was just, you know, he's strange and wow. He said, I knew that was then I knew there was a different level of golf. So, you know, he was an yeah. incredible player. Yeah and, and, yeah, and Curtis, you know, 40 years later, can still almost recite every shot Jack hit that day. It had such a, such an impression on him. And, and I suppose players who played with, with Tiger Woods uh, probably, you know, can recount the same things. And whether or not, you know, Jordan turns out to be that kind of player, it's just kind of that, you know, that, that, that's the one thing, I guess, for, for really great players, right? You want to go out and see guys who can kind of do, you know, Dunkey wasn't all about part of all a part of Michael Jordan's game, but but he had that ability and that that raw talent. And the same with Jack. You know, as far as he could hit the ball, as high and Tiger, and you know, that's just kind of not that extra kind of spark isn't there with with Jordan. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but maybe to to make him a super super superstar. I, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that's a uh, going to be that one kind of missing missing element that that maybe will prevent him from being, um, you know, that really really great, you know, top five ten player ever way down the line if he were to get there. I don't know. We're going to take a short break, gents, because uh, I must chat to Jeff about an Audible book that he's going to tell us about. He's an Audible subscriber, and they, uh, they're they sponsoring the show this week. But when we come back, I'm going to come back to you, Jeff, and I want to talk about the golf course at Augusta, which you wrote about when the Masters had finished. And yes, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word, word products in the catalogue, there is something for everybody at Audible. Jeff, I know that you're a subscriber to Audible, have been for quite some time, big fan of their stuff. You've picked out a book for us today, and I think this one might be right up our target audiences, Ali, a, a golf course architecture book. Yes, well, I have uh, downloaded it. I have not listened yet, but uh, I, I have read parts of the book in print, Bradley Klein's Wide Open Fairways, which is his his sequel of, of essays on golf and golf course architecture, mostly to uh, his previous book, Rough Meditations. And, and uh, it's, to me, it looks like a perfect kind of uh, audio book. It's read by uh, Timothy Bader, who I have no idea who that is. <laughs> uh, but uh, he looks like a competent reader based on some of his other titles, which, of course, does make such a difference on these books. Um, but uh, anyhow, but Dr. Klein uh, gets into uh, all sorts of, topics uh nebraska golf band in um uh there's a chapter on uh, uh i believe on nicholas and trump in in new york so he covers the gamut and of course he's a former guest on the show and um, many of the people who care about the state of the game know his views and he's he's uh, an excellent thinker and and provocative on a number of levels so i'm i'm looking forward to this one as a perfect kind of uh, audio book and it looks like if you're going to, to abandon it's a, a perfect book to uh to take along at least just to listen to that chapter yeah well indeed and of course we did have uh brad klein on the show and he was a fascinating guest he's such an intelligent chap isn't he jeff far beyond just his thoughts on golf course architecture and design and the state of the game he's got one of those minds that brings in you know disparate topics topics that have got nothing to do with golf and sort of gives them a golf spin he's, he's a really interesting thinker isn't he yeah, and a lot of people that that rubs people the wrong way in golf uh, when it sounds too intellectual. And of course, that's what we love about him is that he sees golf course architecture and the game in in a, a broader context 
And I just uh, think that's fascinating that he thinks of it that way, and he's gotten people like us thinking that way. And and I think that's important because uh, we can get a little bit simplistic in golf and the way we approach things. And and so uh, I love that big picture view. And and uh, he's uh, an excellent critic of of courses as well. Yeah, if if you let it, Jeff, golf can be so much more than a decision between a wedge and a nine iron, can't it? Yes, <laughs> yes, and that's what we love about. It. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it is. And by a, the way, uh, one other audible note, uh, I've heard from a few people who, who uh, downloaded the Dan Jenkins uh, new collection of essays, and they're thoroughly enjoying the audio version, so uh, uh, kudos to the reader, and uh, I'm glad to hear that people are getting a kick out of, of, of Dan, because Dan's writing style is very distinct, and that, that's one where it really relies on the reader to uh, convey Dan's sense of humor. Well, exactly. He, he's such a genius. You, you need to get that right. <laughs> yes. To be good. Oh, well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that uh, people are enjoying that. And I'm sure people also enjoyed Wide Open Fairways, Brad Klein, as we said. Great thinker, terrific read. And if you'd like to have a listen to Brad Klein's Wide Open Fairways, you can do so for free by signing up for the free Audible trial at audiblepodcast.com forward slash SOG, S for state, O for of, G for game. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for state, O for of, G for game. You can sign up for a free trial, and that includes a free audiobook. You can collect, you can select Brad Klein's Wide Open Fellows or any one of the other 180,000 plus titles they have across all sorts of genres at audible.com. Time now to get back to the show. Yeah, and we're back and uh, talking of golf course architecture. Jeff, we were just listening to you talk about Brad Klein's book, which was terrific. But, of course, Augusta National, the same course every year for the Masters, always under enormous scrutiny, probably more than any other golf course in the world. You wrote uh, extensively about what you saw on the ground at Augusta National. Give us some thoughts on the course this year. It, uh, it looked greener and softer on TV, and that was certainly what you seemed to suggest in your writing when you returned. Yeah, very much uh, greener and softer, and there were all the usual predictions that they'd turn on the sub-air and that would speed things up, and of course it it didn't happen. The greens did get a lot faster the last day, and I think that's why you saw, um, even though you had, I think Mickelson said 14 of the 18 hole locations he thought were the easiest or, or the most gettable uh, available, you really didn't see any of the leaders do anything too thrilling and make any charges. And, and Mickelson was very upset with himself after the round because I think he believed if he had uh, put a little pressure uh, on, on Spieth in the way of roars that it would have been a, a more interesting finish and he would have had a better chance. But anyway, the, the golf course, um, you know, the greens the first three days and the hole locations were – the greens were a little slower and I thought the hole locations were – were really good, and I think that's why we had good scoring and, and, and just good, interesting golf, I thought, the first three days. And then the last day, it, they sped them up a little bit, and everybody was a little more defensive probably than uh, they expected. But, gosh, tee, tee to fringe, it's it's stunning how much the grass grows from, from 8 a.m. to whatever time we all start to kind of last leave the course, uh, say 6.30 or so. And that's just, I guess, it's just typed up on a lot of different nutrients. And, and um, you know, I thought they monitor that very closely, but I've noticed this the last couple of years that it's just growing so much. So by the time the leaders are out there, it's, it's I don't want to call it shaggy, but uh, it certainly is not scary to today's golfers. And Tiger mentioned that after on Sunday, and some of the other players did as well. Certainly, some of the lots, some, I, I, some of the close-ups it, we saw, Jeff, particularly around the greens, the lies did yeah. look shaggy. I think yeah, that's a fair. I said they certainly didn't look tight. Uh, yeah, like you might see, or might have seen in years past. Uh, 
And you can't take that course too close to the edge because they'll be out there all day. But you would like to see um, you would like to see a little more uh, firmness and tightness in the in the turf with what they are able to do. They can do anything they want, but so much of it is just built around trying to slow down the drives. And and what's ironic, you stand out there and Jordan hits uh, three wood off the second tee mm, for two reasons, I think. One, it takes the bunker out of play because there literally is no roll, <laughs> and even and, and you know there really wasn't a lot of rain. There was a big thunderstorm that hit parts of the town. It kind of it hit the uh, it hit the Cliff Roberts bubble and didn't really hit Augusta National that hard on uh, I believe it was Friday night. And um, but he hits three wood to take the bunker out of play and then also to give himself the non downhill lie that you get when you get past the bunker, but. You really you just have no fear of, of a ball hitting a tee shot at something like that if you know your distance and having it roll out into a bunker. It's that kind of danger is not there right now, and and I think that's uh, I think that's unfortunate. It, it seems to be missing. Clay, what were your thoughts from watching on television for the first time ever? I don't know whether it's me that's changed or the course, but almost found the the color of the course and the second cut in particular and the fringes around the greens looked really jarring to my eye this year. I've not sort of felt that. I think. Previously, what were your thoughts on the course from seeing on TV, Clates? And then what Jeff sort of spoke to, that is a real difference about Augusta National these days, isn't it? The ball doesn't bounce and take off and end up in an uncontrolled area. It does seem to pitch and stop. Yeah, well, that first cut of rough always looked – the course always looked better to me when there was no rough. But, I mean, Jeff, I was – the, the trees are still there, aren't they? The trees at 11. Oh, yeah, they're awful. Yeah, yeah they're just that's the most and, – And the rough is awful in the way it uh, stops balls from, from going into the yeah. trees still. Even though yeah. there's not much roll, you still see a few shots where the rough stops a ball headed for trouble, the, the most obvious being Jordan on Thursday when he knew he'd hit too much club into 15, and that ball uh, four or five years ago goes in the lake on 16, no problem. Yeah. Clates, any other observations? Just from watching, it's hard watching on TV, I know, but to me that just seemed, it did look very green and sort of not, over manicured, it's almost too much, isn't it, Clates? I mean, well, it's, you know, it's perfect, but I guess when you have that money, you can make it perfect. It's just that it sets a stand, you know, it sets some sort of standard for that other, other people think they need to match when in truth they don't. Uh, Jeff, how was. 17 and the, the with that silly tree gone is it oh it's awful i mean it's it's your it's i i tried to explain to somebody who didn't understand why i find these trees so offensive i said it's like going to ruth's chris and getting your steak dinner with the sizzling butter and it's they put it down in front of you and there's a big hair in it you know when you go up yeah. to the 17th hole it's like what golf course am i on this is just so beneath augusta national this beautiful property this brilliant design with these great vistas and then it's just just tree farm and where you can hit it in the fairway and you'll have a tree in your way and the seventh hole seems to be better they've either taken a few out or a few came out in the ice storm but you still see players kind of working shots around the trees and it looks kind of silly but but 11 and um uh, uh 17 are just 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 so ridiculous in the way they they really just detract from what is such a, a great design and and uh uh, you just wonder when they play there if anybody. I, I just think no, the people are afraid to really ex- take the chairman, who's a very uh, who will listen. Um, he, and and he say, look, this is why you. this doesn't look good. Yeah, it, it, yeah. is seventeen a better hole though for the Eisenhower tree gone or? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it seemed to to play about the same as it did last year, which is by taking the tree out, more players laid back, 
And then by laying back, they don't get as good of a view of the green. And therefore, that green, as you know, you, yeah. you, you have to see that green. It, you know, when you watch players hit shots into that green, they know immediately whether they've hit a good shot or they're dead because they can remember each little quadrant of the green, which I love that element to it. And they know which features they can work a shot off of. And when they've just mishit a shot a little bit, they know right off the bat. And so when you don't see that green, it's just that much more difficult to hit into. So the irony is take, is the tree coming out. The players, I'll tell you, oh, no, nothing's changed. Uh, but then you actually go out and watch some golf and you say, well, no, there's actually more of a, a reward than ever to hit as far down as the hole as you can to see into that green. And without the tree, guys have just said, well, now I could just hit three wood. It, it, the fairway's a little wider there. And they're actually putting themselves in a in a worse position. So it, there is more strategy. Um, yeah. It's just that the narrowness part of it is uh, it just it's more of an aesthetic thing, really. Uh, but it is very narrow. Well, luckily they saved some of the Eisenhower tree, Jeff. Oh yes, they'll be able to replant it. I think they've got a haven't they got a some saplings growing somewhere that they they have uh, saplings uh, growing uh, somewhere. They've genetically I forgot the words the chairman used. They were. They were, and it was an interesting description. And they are, they are hopeful that uh, offspring can be reared from the tree. And then they also did a beautiful display for the Dwight Eisenhower uh, Library, and then also for the club. And I heard there was another one down at Berkman's place, but uh, I didn't see it. And then uh, I also understand the champions got some sort of wood box or something made out of wood from the tree. Uh, one of one or two of the champions mentioned that, but uh, they didn't go into detail what it was. If it's a cigar box, or I, I don't know what it is. Has ever a tree dominated so many column inches? Gil, you've been going to Augusta National for a long time. Changes to the course. Do you care to wade into this um, potentially dangerous debate about the state of the course I, and how I, it's changed over the years? I cannot believe uh, my uh, my two fellow uh, fellow guys here on the, on this little panel uh, don't realize that the golf course was intentionally made softer for Rory McIlroy to win the career in slam because we all know that Roy only wins majors on soft golf courses. Um, uh, uh, and I'm waiting for a laugh from somebody. Well, this was, but... He never had a golf course. <laughs> he never had a course better for him than he did last week at Augusta or two weeks ago at Augusta. He just that was his opportunity and well, let's, um, let's but then you about... think about you think about the way he approached it versus uh, Jordan Spieth and and it's just night and day the difference even though they were what only five shots apart or something. Let's talk He's about posing on men's health, and Jordan's uh, grinding away on the West Coast. 15 under the last 45 holes, Gil Caps. Rory must be kicking himself about the first 27. Well, well you did. We made that stat there that, that night, uh, Sunday night, on, uh, on live from the Masters on Golf Channel. You know, if you were to play those first 27 holes and three under instead of three over, he's, he's tied with, with, with Spieth. Um, I, 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 I'm going to step outside our... Uh, our golf bubble inside the, the Beltway, uh, you know, the type view a lot of us have uh, with golf, which there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I, the general public, you know, we're talking about growing the game and getting more people to watch and be interested. They could care less about how the golf course is set up. They want to see two things. They want to see great shots, and they want to see big names win and big names compete. And that's what they got at, at this Masters, and that's what they got 40 years ago at the 1975 Masters, you know, if Jack Nicklaus wins at 12 under the U.S. Open 40 years ago, 
you know, PJ Boatwright's having a, a heart attack, uh, you know, right, th- right there at the end, you know, but, but, but for the masters, you know, I, and that's, you know, we talk about what the masters means to, to the public and, and how it's viewed. And, and I made the argument, I think 1975 was, was the big turning point where people, you know, went from Nicholas Miller, wise golf growing up as kids, the putt they always had was to win the U S open, you know, but starting 75, I think is really when it fully turned to where, you know, now if you go out, I would, I would venture in most golf courses, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world, a majority, Paul, majority of the kids out there on practice putting greens, you know, you got this putt, what's to win? It's to win the masters. And, and, and I think that's in the mindset of everybody. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's, you know, especially in 75, it was complete opposite of when you went to the U.S. Open at, at Medina two months later, and it's, it's a bogey fest, and you have an 18-0 playoff between not putting down Lou Graham and John Matthew, but that was your 18-0 playoff. <laughs> and, and, you know, contrast to what happened two months earlier with, with the three most talented players of the game and highest at the time, battling down a stretch, great shot, great shot, and one of the most famous shots in putts and golf history. Um, that's a, that's a pretty stark contrast. And, and obviously fast forward now to what we're going to see here, uh, in, in, at Chambers Bay, if we skip past the, the players, you know, that's, uh, you know, it, it could be another contrast. It's going to be, uh, be really interesting to see how, how Chambers Bay plays and, and what type of golf we see and what kind of, what kind of champion we see. Clates is making a couple of points in the background. I'll come to you in a second, Clates. But that's been brilliantly orchestrated by the club over time, hasn't it, Gil? And I think the Asia-Pacific Amateur and the Latin American Amateur Championship, where those players get a, a place in the field, that the Masters have made themselves now globally the tournament that kids aspire to get because they feel that they have a chance to. It's been a stroke of genius on their part, those two tournaments. I know at the Asia-Pacific at Melbourne, it, it was brilliant that – but all of those kids from everywhere around the world, the Masters was now at the very top of the list, Had it, even if it hadn't been before. They've been very good at that, haven't they, Jeff? Well, that's always been the mission of Bobby Jones was to make they, – yeah, they were they were cutting edge when it came to international uh, invitations uh, before it was cool to do that, which is, which is what's refreshing about Billy Payne when he talks about things they've done. And, and he, he's, he's right. He says, I have the blueprint. It's from Clifford Roberts and Bobby Jones. And most of the great things he's done are, are based off of what, uh, was their philosophy and their belief. And, and I, I have no doubt that adding those amateurs is going to be a great thing. Long-term, maybe short-term it weakens the field, but long-term it's brilliant. The one thing where he, 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 differs from Bobby Jones and, and, and that is a golf course being soft. It's just something that Bobby Jones absolutely hated and despised it, wrote at length about it uh, and really didn't go in, into great depth on many topics, but that was one. And so that's to me why it's interesting. I, and Gil is absolutely right. The average person just cares about the leaderboard, but uh, it's also our job is, is watching this in a more uh, analytical way to, to point these things out, knowing that foundation that uh, that uh, what Jones believed in and preached. Clayton, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, I'm going to ask you your own question, the 1975 US Open. What would Jones make of that? It's an interesting question. What do you reckon? Well, there were two points. I, I was just – Kill and I were thinking you know, the exact same thing. You went from Augusta in 75, which was the, one of the great masters, to Medina, which was, I mean, Nicholas Bogey, the last three holes to lose and 
Frank Beer was leading and shot 78 the last uh, the last day, and it was turned into a it was one of the least memorable U.S. Opens ever, which goes to the Masters has always done a great job of identifying the best player in the world, whereas the U.S. Open really hasn't. And and they don't seem to draw the the two together. And well, one of them's got no rough and doesn't worry about what score wins. And one of them's smothered in rough and they're paranoid about anything under par winning. But my, my, my other point about Jones was, and I thought about it the other day, what, what would Jones make of the situation now where so many kids in the game and who are staying in the game see the Masters as a more significant championship than the British or the US Opens? I mean, I would have thought Jones would hate that. I think you're right. Well, he was always uncomfortable about the notion of it being called the Masters, wasn't he? What, 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 well, I just, you know, you know, I mean, the US Open and the British Open were, you know, the two tournaments that he that made him, well, that he made and made him. And, and what would he say now if someone said, well, you know, there are lots of kids around the world who think the US Masters is way more important than the US Open or the British Open? Interesting question, isn't it, Gil? What do you think? Well, well, well that's the great irony, right? Because when, uh, when Augusta National Golf Club was, was founded, I mean, they, they inquired and looked into hosting uh, U.S. Open. That was Bobby Delavan, his, his dream for U.S. Open to have been hosted there, uh, there in Augusta. Um, uh, it didn't work out there in the early 30s for, for a variety of reasons, obviously playing, uh, playing that far south at the time. And obviously at that time, you know, there were sectional qualifying and having sectional qualifiers in, in March up in the Northeast. That it wasn't, it wasn't going to work out. And, and so the irony is, you know, finally, you know, Bobby Jones passed away in 1971, obviously, but, but five years later, you know, finally the U.S. Open comes at the discount Texas, comes to, to the southeast United States for the first time ever. It's played on, on Bobby Jones at, at his home club, Atlanta Athletic Club, there in Atlanta. It, it had moved from, from East Lake out to the suburbs in the 60s. And so, you know, it should be this kind of, you know, crowning kind of, you know, U.S. Open finally Bobby Jones' home club. But, so by then, you're right. The Masters had eclipsed the U.S. Open as the as the biggest tournament in the world, and uh, you know I I don't know what Bobby Jones would think about. It. I think he thinks, you know, he maybe he thinks you know along the same lines. If you ask a, a Jack Nicholas, you know, even to this day, he he'll still tell you that you know the U.S. Open to him, you know, is the most important tournament because that's that's his national championship, and and the British Open probably not far behind PGA and Masters. You know, it, once again, it, it's just—it's remarkable when you think about it. It's all it is is a little invitational event run by a private club in Augusta, Georgia. That's what it is, and to what it's become through the sheer will and ingenuity and creativity of of Jones and Clifford Roberts and Chairman Sense uh, uh, to be what it is today. Uh, um, you know, you talk about American success stories, and you'd have to put that tournament right at the very top. Of course, Gil, we still miss the uh, the Miss Masters parade, which I think was mentioned. Earlier, uh, still, <laughs> yeah. to this day, would add something to the week. <laughs> were they to uh, were they to bring it back? Let's talk about some of the other players. We touched on Rory there, and obviously a, a disappointing week for him. But Clayton, I wanted to get your thoughts about uh, Tiger's week. It looked like a very different Tiger would smell. I think most of the world waited for him to come out and miss his first green and see what would happen. I think we can safely say, if he ever had the yips, uh, they're gone. Do you think? Well, some people would say once you've got them, you've got them. I would have thought once you've got them, you've got them, which is why I now think maybe he didn't have the yips. They looked like the yips, though, didn't it? Well, it did, which was Henry Longhurst's great phrase. But 
I, mean, I thought Tiger was pretty good. I mean, his driving still. What, what, I mean, how can you only hit two fairways at Augusta? Whether the widest fairway, well, apart from a, a couple of notable exceptions, they're pretty wide. I mean, it's staggering that you can drive the ball so poorly. But I mean, his swing, his swing, his iron swing was great to me, and he, you know, he still. You know, it goes back to that question about the edge. Has he lost that? Is, is, it, is it coming back? As I mean, people still, I still watch him play and think, well, I'm sure that guy can win majors, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you've got to drive the ball better than he does. Uh, Shaq, I thought that to me, one of the there was two really telling things about Tiger's game. Through. We saw so much less of that rehearsal swing after every shot which he mm-hmm. just seemed to have got in the habit of after every shot. He had to yeah. have 10 of these over the top. sort of. That was sort of gone. But he just looked to me a bit like he played on instinct and that 13th hole on Saturday was the – you could oh. you can't imagine a player of his calibre hitting no. that drive. That It's unthinkable. A fat duck hook that goes 170 yards mm. and yet from there he makes four with a – you know, yeah. he hits a tree with his second, but he sticks it to 10 feet and he makes the putt. It was it was almost vintage Tiger. It doesn't matter where you put him, he's going to make four from somewhere. Um, and that, I thought, was really encouraging. He didn't hit it great, didn't hit it as good as he can, obviously. But, gee, for, for what he brought to the course, his score was, I thought, phenomenal. Oh, the entire week was phenomenal. Uh, everybody, it's easy to focus on those tee shots. There was I was standing right behind the ninth tee when he hit the uh, just a, an incredible drop kick. And uh, then he ran off to use the restroom, but he 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 kind of made a joke when he went out to Joe Lacava after hitting it, and uh, his mood was just incredible all week. It started that I'm st- I still think the whole scene on Monday when he when he arrived was surreal. He he just comes rolling out and he's hugging everybody and he's listening to Mike Weir bellow on about his bad elbow, and he goes right to the chipping green. And he's, you know, he's doing little dance moves. I mean, it was like like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever walking down the sidewalk, you know. You just, you're like, wait, what is going on here? This is not, this is surreal. And he was great in the interview room. He was uh, pretty good in the post-round interviews. Um, Played the part Sunday, Sunday he was a little crankier. And Bill McAtee that kind of called him out on his uh, popping the bone back in place thing. But uh, <laughs> the, the short game was, every time I've watched him, was he had – multiple opportunities to duff a shot and uh he didn't and the game was was for somebody who's rusty and who was awful and yippee it was i i I just think the week is a total home run for him and uh hopefully it's he's turned the corner what's the difference do you think check we saw him play the par three contest with the kids and he looked like a, a different person and then just on the chipping the pitch he hit into 11 on the first day that was not a yipper's shot, was it? That was a terrifying <laughs> prospect, and he carried that past the hole and stopped it from over the back yeah. of the green. That was an extraordinary shot for someone who he he might. How does he not think about all of the horror shows that we watched just a couple of months ago when he's standing over that ball? I thought that was a that was the moment to me when it said, "Okay, well, he's recovered from that." Well, someday he'll tell us. He won't tell us now. Maybe it's medic. Uh, it's meditation. Maybe it's. Um... Is he happy? Maybe. He looked happy at the par three. Maybe, yes, that could be it. Um, uh, maybe this work he's been doing is really uh, what he says it is, and, and it's it's gotten to what you, you know you talked about more of a going on instinct, and and because the talent is there and the abilities there, so it's I don't I don't really care what it is. I hope he tells us, but I'm just glad that he's he's not out making a, a fool of himself and. Because it's it's painful to watch. Anybody who's been there knows it's just awful. And and uh, 
and just to have him back in the mix is uh, is and then have Phil playing well again and although I don't know if Phil ever really was playing that poorly I just think he really is at the point in his career and Tiger's probably there too where they just they just don't really care unless it's a major and and I and I and I completely understand Absolutely. that. Fair enough, too. Exactly. Gil, you've already used the word was in relation to Tiger once on this podcast. The great ones do amazing things. Does Tiger Woods have another act in his career that we are not expecting? Has he got it in him? You know, I I brought up the name Tom McAllister, and uh, I don't know if you guys remember who, who that person was. You know, back in 1986 when he wrote for the Atlanta paper, Week of the Masters, you know, gave technicals the chances of, of winning that week being you know, none. And so nobody wants to be Tom McAllister and say the Tiger, you know, is done, right? Nobody wants to be that that person who Tiger puts up on the uh, uh, on the refrigerator with, with the magnet. Um, I, I was happy to see Tiger when he was on the golf course, show some frustration and, and emotion and and a little bit of anger here and there. But that seemed to be what would have been lacking, um, you know. And I was concerned when when the hugs started early in the week and they kept continuing if, when he got on the golf course and. Get a few bad shots if Pete. We would see kind of a an I don't care attitude. So I think that bodes well for Tiger uh, going down the stretch. It showed me a little something. I like you guys. I was impressed with what he was able to do. But you know, let's let's face it. He was coming back at Augusta National, a place that uh, you know doesn't have a full field. Experience matters a lot. Um, you know, playing the way he played. What does he do uh, if he plays the players here in two weeks? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, that is a total examination of of every part of of your game. And, and look, let's not forget. Go back to the point, you know, uh, which Mike brought up once again about the edge. And, and I've said this, uh, you know, in, in private conversations and been bantied about. If Tiger were to come back from, from what he went through uh, in, in 2009, and then you know, on top of that, now the injuries and the swing change, if he were to come back and win multiple majors and win a bunch more tour events at this age. To me, it would be, you know, the, the one of the greatest comebacks in the history of sports to get back to that level because of the edge, you know? And people say, oh, Ben Hogan was in a car wreck. I understand Ben Hogan was in a car wreck, but that car wreck did not take away the edge that Ben Hogan felt he had on the golf course or the edge over other people. That car accident, what's happened since then, did for Tiger, just as I did for Arnold at the 66 U.S. Open, just as I did for Watson at the British Open, you know, 84, just as I did for Weisskopf for the 75 Masters. And we can name, you know, most of the great players. They can go back and pick at that one moment, you know, where they it was kind of, you know, they lost their edge and they kind of knew that, you know, their time was done. It was, you know, a shot, a, a skull by Sandy Lowell in the LA Open 88. It was... To me, it was Faldo playing with Tiger Woods in 1970, 1997 Masters because Nick's won one in one day that the game had passed him by. You know, a matter of one year, the game had got to pass him by. And so for Tiger to overcome, he's lost it. He lost that edge. For him to ever get that edge back and do anything close to what he used to do, I, you know, I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm not saying anybody can ever do anything, but it would be the most remarkable story. His car accident and Ben Hogan's car accident were two very different things, weren't they, Gil? <laughs> Thank you. Two very different they, things. They were. But I'm, not, I'm not saying what Ben had, uh, what Hogan had overcome wasn't substantial no. and it wasn't a, a great story. And then what he was able to do physically after that, I mean, and, but 
but there was Hogan never lost mystique, right? May have lost some of the physical ability and may have had issues that he was dealing with personally. He never lost mystique and until maybe Jack like a, a little bit, but at that time, you know, Hogan was what already forty, uh, you know, almost mid forties. The Tiger, the mystique is gone from Tiger right now. You know, Hogan Can had the mystique support. come back. Yeah. Hogan had the support of people after his car accident. Woods lost it. I think probably the big difference. That's right. Uh, in that way. Um, enough about the Masters, Augusta and, and Roy. There's plenty of other interesting stuff in golf. We're going to get through these pretty quickly. Jeff, I saw a video on your website this very morning about the Turnbury redo. You mentioned you were nervous. I think most of us were nervous about the thought of Donald Trump messing with an open championship venue. But this video looks pretty good. I think you made the point. It was a pretty impressive um, sort of PR job with the graphics and showing what they were oh, going to do. It incredible. actually looks yeah. pretty impressive, doesn't it? Yeah, other than the uh, some of the ridiculous walks back to the next tee because the ball goes too far, uh, it's, the, the course just uh, it looks like a better use of the land. And, you know, it's, you hate to see a golf course that's produced such great events be tinkered with. On the other hand, if you've played there, uh, you you know that those ocean holes really don't quite capture the land maybe as best as they possibly can. And I I. Uh, I love the two new par threes. Uh, I, I don't love the fact that all the par threes. I think I laughed out loud. I got to go back and watch the video again. They they mentioned one of the par threes have been shortened, and I think it was still two thirty. Uh, <laughs> so I don't I don't know about that. But that was five, I think, Jeffy. In fact, no, I think that's gone down to one fifty five. Not uh, it was number six. I the think was they said. Six, six is a yeah. massive hole. That's, Maybe um, I was looking at the uh, the yardage on the screen, but um, anyway, it, it it looked. I mean that I don't know, Clates. Uh, what what you thought in terms of design presentations, but I've never seen an architect do something like that, and I I, uh, I just thought it was uh, very impressive. And and the one funny thing, of course, though, is how presumptuous they are about the next Open Championship there, and I don't really see an opening for them uh, going back there for quite a while. Probably will though. Clutch, did you have a look at the video? Oh Any yeah, thoughts and. Uh, has it no, made I your haven't. job harder now? I haven't, <laughs> you, I, I haven't but I will. But I mean, all, all the video has a great. Uh, as with all architecture, it's not about the cell; it's about what you put on the ground. But yeah. I mean, I, you know, Turnberry is the most overrated open course, certainly. So any improvement would be good. Uh, and that nine holes a completely ridiculous hole. So yeah, it's not. It doesn't work. That's an awful hole. So which one's going to become the path three to the lighthouse? Isn't it? The ninth is where the uh, they're they're eliminating that. Shades of the sixth at New South Wales, although um, a more impressive halfway house uh, that lighthouse will make. Which was, so we'll see what uh, see what happens. And the last thing I wanted to touch on with you, Jeff, there's been a fair bit of television stuff. I think uh, Fox have got their first USGA event coming up the fall, wasn't it? You, were, you wanted to talk a little bit about the May schedule and how it's changed. There's a bunch of interesting stuff happening. But as far as what we might see on screen, um, Fox having the US Open this year for the first time... Uh, Mark Loomis has given some interviews which suggest we might actually see some good, interesting stuff. They do Their innovations might not be some of the gaudy stuff we were fearing when we first heard Fox were taking over the yeah. US Open. <clears throat> I, do, I do think they're going to do some great things. I am, um, uh, I, I'm a little leery of them trying to do too much in this first telecast. I mean, they have their first telecast in two weeks and then the US Open right after that. I mean, this is really a tall task. And uh, but that said, I think so much can be uh, done with the the way they position cameras, and I think he's wor- really worked hard on that element of it. Uh, they've talked about trying to show greens more. NBC's 
kind of done that for a long time, actually, maybe not with actual camera shots, but, but with graphics. Uh, so I, I, that I kind of thought was, uh, I don't think they'll be really cutting edge there, but I'm, I'm excited to see it. I, I, but most people have been seizing on the number of announcers they've, they've announced and, and they do have, uh, they have some incredible amounts of time they plan to be on the air. I don't know what you will get down under, but they are going to be on for some very long windows. And so I think that's why they have so many people. They're just going to be rotating announcers in and hopefully the same with the crew because those are some really long days. And uh, especially at Chambers Bay, uh, the, the crew will be out in a very exposed golf course. It's just going to be a long, long uh, haul for them and, and a tough way to start. But uh, definitely some interesting voices. And, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I, May has always been to me such a dreadful month for pro golf and where, where I just, yeah, it's a shame because it's springtime here. People are excited and the Texas swing and certain things just don't excite. And I think this year, besides Jordan Spieth playing in those hometown events, adding some luster to those going to Royal County down is going to be so exciting later in the month. And, and the, uh, the players is always something in fun always happens. And, uh, the match play at Harding Park is going to start the month off. So I, I just, I'm, I'm excited. I don't know about you, but I actually, for a change, feel like May is going to be interesting. A good field lining up for that uh, Irish Open at Royal County Down. Rory's yeah. been out busy, obviously. He's got some serious names. Of, yeah, good for him. Yeah, absolutely good on him and supporting uh, supporting his home golf. We have the same sort of thing in Australia, which is terrific. The last thing I wanted to touch on with you, uh, Jeff, we discussed this very briefly. You were talking about tennis and former players being great commentators, and we don't seem to have such a great tradition of that in golf. Tease that out. Well, well, when you you see that list that that um, um, Fox has put out, you you don't you know Greg Norman's on there and Tom Weisskopf mercifully has been added who will be phenomenal. He's always great. Um, but one of the things I I've noticed watching the Australian Open and then uh, the Indian Wells event here. Uh, and the tennis channel here, tennis has all their their living legends essentially. Uh, the or at least the people I grew up: Chris Everett, John McEnroe, uh, Lindsey Davenport. All these people are. There's two trends. One, they're all announcing, and they're and they're all really very good at it. And then now there are a lot of them are getting into coaching as well, which is a whole other show. And we we've touched on it briefly that oh, that could happen in golf because good players seem to respond more. But I I'm just curious. Um, and Gil is somebody who's worked in this uh, area for a long time. Uh, I'm fascinated why golf is uh, not producing sort of the provocative voices that you see, say, in, in tennis. In fairness, Gil's Gil, <laughs> Gil's guy. Did he Johnny hang up Miller. on us? No, no, he hasn't. Gil, Gil's I, guy, Johnny I, Miller, I, is I, one I, of those I, controversial I, ones. He's a. <laughs> I, I, I am try. still here, and, and, and <laughs> I am still here, and I will. Uh, I, I will take a, a a swing at this. You know, I to me it may be twofold, Jeff. I, you know, especially in this day and age, you know, there's so much money to be made in golf, and in particular, there's, there's so much money to be played if you keep on playing. You know, right? Yeah. Keep on. You're in the tour on tour in your 40s, and then you get 50s. You get to the Champions Tour, and and and, and maybe I'm speaking. Uh, out of you know, turn here, but I don't know that much about tennis, but but I can imagine there being, you know, so many sponsorship dollars for retired tennis players as there are out there for retired golfers and and outings they do and guys who are yep. still in their fifties, sixties, and seventies who go make, you know, let, let's face it, it's easy money, 
there are easier ways. Even though, look, even though it's fun and it's an honor to do uh, to do the television for for a lot of these guys, it's it's still it's hard money. It's travel. It's the hours are even longer and longer. It's to do well at it. You have to do your homework and commit to it. You can't just show up in the tower and uh, you know on a set and just wing it uh, in this day and age. Um, that would be number one. Number two, which again, it, it's always fascinated me, golf and the fact that it seems like out of all the sports, uh, there may be a, a few other exceptions, but you know we have the most thin-skinned uh, mm. players we talk about. <laughs> I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because even unlike tennis, I mean, tennis is an, is an individual sport, right? But but you have a competitor on the other side of the net you're playing against. Yeah. It's still, you know, mano a mano. Where golf, you know, you're still pretty much just playing the golf course, right? It may get into yep. match play situations, but it's a different player, players involved all the time. And it's unlike any other sport, you know, that, that we see on TV or mainstream in that regard. So, um, you know, the fact that these, you know, have a lot of guys still try to commentate and play at the same time. And I had one uh, particular golfer uh, who still plays some, and I point blank, he was telling me something, I point blank said, why, why do you say that on air? Because I still have to walk in the locker room. You know, yeah. I still have to walk in the locker room. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, uh, that's a big hindrance to, uh, you know, to, to being, uh, uh, to being yeah. honest and forthright and, and really, uh, Saying uh, saying what you think about what is uh, what is happening. Not not the great golf commentary has to be, you know, excuse me, criticizing or uh, even no, effectively no, criticizing somebody. But you know, but you, you want to be entertained and informed, right? When you're watching right. any sporting event, it has to add to what to what you're seeing on television, and that's uh, that's very very important. And you'd like for that pool of potential people to be uh, to, to be as wide as possible. But mm. I don't think that's gonna going to happen in golf for the, for the first reason I mentioned. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, Clay's former players? Uh, I look at somebody like Ian Baker Finch and having sort of not done what Gil does, but sat in the commentary booth one year at the Australian Open. He was there. They really put some work in. It's it's no doddle doing television commentary, and Baker Finch obviously that's what he does now. It's his sort of second career, and he works hard at it. But I can't. I, I think Gil's right. I can't see the appeal for a lot of former players. Yeah. I mean, why would Ogilvy want to go into commentary when, as Gil yeah. says, he can do ten corporate days a year and make five times as much money? Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's nice money. I, I mean, well, I suppose it keeps him relevant, keeps him around the tour. And I, I, I know Finchie loves being around the tour and traveling the country and playing different golf courses. And he can do all that when he's working what he's doing. My question would be, why isn't, why doesn't Tom Weisskopf have, have Greg Norman's job? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> we Maybe he's too that, provocative. Well. Well, I think Weisskopf's just the most interesting guy in golf, or certainly one of them. I've, the times I've spent around him, not the, uh, only a couple, but I thought he was, you could listen to him for hours. Such an in- interesting guy and such an incredible experience in the game. And he was a great player and an architect and a, you know, a student of it, really. I just, thought, I just think there's a, surely a huge role for him in the U.S. Open. Well, I think Gil actually touched on it. I, I think he's actually been open about not really wanting to, to work that hard at it at the announcing he's got other interests he likes to do other things and uh i don't think he wants to sit around and watch the first round of the zero classic to yeah. to keep up on people and and so maybe that uh that's probably part of the reason but i i, I kind of like that about him <laughs> yeah well you, you, you know the, the, aside from the money aspect too you know the, the really good ones who who go into tv uh broadcasting they have a passion for it you know that yeah. they love the game uh they love talking about it 
uh, even when they're not playing and they have a passion to um, to be on television and, and to present their views and, and thoughts and ideas uh, to those watching. And, uh, and those are the really good ones. And I think that's another reason a lot of people, a lot of them just, just don't have the passion to mm. do that, and, and you have to have a passion to be yeah. to be really good at anything you do. And I think the ones you, you know, all the ones, any, every, we all have our favorite commentators. But I think you pick at any of them who are your favorites, and, and I can probably tell you, you know, firsthand, yeah, that guy has a that guy or, or that uh, that woman has a passion for uh, for what they do on TV. Well, that's what that's what's great about Johnny is that even after all these years, you still sense he. He wants to put on a good show and have a good telecast and and have everybody talking about it and excited and fun and and Faldo when he's really locked in at the Masters I think he's that that way too where you there is a showmanship element that they have that that not a lot of golfers have. Mm. The other thing, Gil, I suppose, you spend your life as a golfer being criticized by amateurs and people taking pot shots at you who know nothing about what they're talking about. You wade into exactly the same pool in television, don't you? You only have to go on the internet to see what the commentators get. Rip, mm. There's any number of websites devoted to telling you why Johnny Miller doesn't know anything about the golf swing. So why put yourself up for that um, if you don't really, as you say, you really do need to have uh, the passion for it. There's no question about that. Gents, there's a million things, as always, that we could continue to talk about. But we've kept Gil for long enough, and I'm sure we've all got other things to get on with. I must firstly thank you, Gil. been fantastic to have you along again. And I think you might be our first two-time repeat guest. I want to have you back uh, in the not-too-distant future. But thanks for chatting today. Hey, Rod, Mike, Jeff, thank you guys very much for having me again, and uh, all the best, and hopefully I'll talk to you again uh, down the road real soon. And the book's still for sale, isn't it, Gil? You better give it a plug. Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the books don't just go away. They, they linger on shelves and, and in warehouses. Uh, anywhere books are sold, online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The Magnificent Masters now now out in paperback as well, and if you want to... Okay. Uh, Read uh, read a little more about it and find out exactly where you can get it. There's a link on uh, my website, gilcaps.com, G-I-L-C-A-P-P-S dot com. We'll put another one on Jeff Shackleford dot com. Oh, that's a bit forward of me. Yeah, Jeff, will you put another yes. one? Yes, yes, I will. <laughs> Take over you, Gil. I uh, hope we sell some more copies. It is a fantastic read, and I hope everybody does themselves a favor and gets it. Thanks for taking some time today, Jeff. To you in the states, as always, been great to All right. get your thoughts and thank you for your input thank today. Thank you, Rod. And Clates, always fascinating to hear your take on stuff. Thanks for getting up bright and early to chat to us today. Thank you, Rod. Pleasure. And that wraps it up for State of the Game episode 55. It just keeps trundling on. We'll be back again to do it all in the not-too-distant future. We look forward to your company then on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.